Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes psychologist and author Dr. Mary Pfeiffer for a conversation about her career and her most recent book, A Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. Part two will be released on December 20th. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you from Chaddock for another episode. So, everyone, I am giddy with excitement about the person I am interviewing today. This is one of the greatest highlights of my podcasting endeavors, being able to interview this person. So let me do some background and introduction on the amazing Mary Pfeiffer. Mary Pfeiffer was born in October 1947. She is an American clinical psychologist and author. No doubt just about everyone who listens to this podcast has heard of her. She has many books. Her most recent one that we're going to be highlighting today is called Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. But she's also written Women Rowing North, The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves in Our Capsized Culture, the bestseller she's actually a new york times bestseller four times but one of them is the book reviving ophelia i have recommended that book to just about every mother of a daughter i have ever met and i have followed mary pfeiffer's career since maybe college possibly high school i'd have to look like when her very first book was written but it feels like a very long time i want to share just a bit about her educational background she has a bachelor of arts degree in anthropology from the university of california berkeley and a phd in clinical psychology from the university of nebraska in lincoln and she has received many awards for her work over the years i particularly wanted to mention her educational background because her degree in anthropology, I think really makes her voice different than the typical clinical psychologist out there who might be writing books. She brings in a lot of things about the broader culture into what she writes about. And that's one of the reasons I find the book's she writes so unique and different and compelling. I have every book she has ever written. I have a special section in my bookshelf where all of them are. She owns a large portion of my bookshelf and she is going to be coming right up. I just can't wait to share this interview with all of you. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In January, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, 
consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. Well, hello everyone out there. Just as promised, I am now here with Dr. Mary Pfeiffer. So Dr. Pfeiffer, welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yes. So I am sure many of our listeners are familiar with your work, but I really wanted them to recognize how long you have been writing and and putting your voice out there. I've been so influenced by many of your books, starting with, I think, Hunger Pains. Uh, was that your first book? I was trying to do a little research and I couldn't quite mm-hmm. figure that out. Yeah, well, I can see why you would be confused because when I wrote Hunger Pains, I think it was around 87, Uh, I couldn't find a publisher for it. I found an agent for it, but she couldn't sell it. And so I self-published that book. And I published about 2,000 copies of it, put it in boxes in the trunk of my car. And I drove around this area of the Midwest. I live in Nebraska. And just gave workshops on eating disorders and um, sold that book after the workshops. Then after reviving Ophelia, became a big hit and number one times bestseller. Then a company, of course, wanted to publish Hunger Pains. So it actually came out after Reviving Ophelia, but it was written and self-published before Reviving Ophelia. Okay. And so I tell every mother of daughters I can to read Reviving Ophelia. And I remember I wasn't a mother when I first read it. I remember reading it and just being absolutely blown away. Did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine what was going to happen with that book? Oh, absolutely not. You know, I'm a really just a very ordinary therapist in Lincoln. And um, when I was lucky enough to get an editor, I had a wonderful editor. She helped me. She taught me how to write a book, basically. Uh, Beautiful relationship with this editor, Jane, I say, but when when she and I were preparing for the, the rollout of reviving, she said, now, this is going to be a small book. And I go, what do you mean by that? And she goes, well, we won't be doing much promotion. We don't think, you know, it will be a book that has large sales and so on. And it actually didn't uh, with the hardback, although it made a big impact. Um, right after the hardback came out, I got asked to address all of the girls' schools in the country's heads at a conference, and then just immediately started flying around the country speaking at the big private girls' schools. So it made a big impact immediately on how people were thinking about girls that worked with girls. But it actually became a big hit with the paperback. And probably what really helped it was I was on fresh air. Mm-hmm. And I heard people say later, I was driving down an interstate and heard you talk about reviving Ophelia. And I turned off at the first exit I could with the bookstore and went in and bought it. Because at the time I wrote it, girls were in a lot of trouble. 
And the only theory really was the dysfunctional family theory, which of course made parents feel terrible and wasn't in any way helpful. So as soon as I turned the examination lens in another direction, people were just so hungry for it. And I turned it that way because I had a lot of teenage clients and the old theories weren't making sense to me. And I had a teenage daughter and, and uh, her troubles were not coming from our home. They were coming from junior high. So it really had me thinking about, we need a new paradigm to deal with teenage girls. But no, I was absolutely stunned. I walked into a bookstore in Brookline, Mass, and uh, the owner came up to me. I was going to give a little talk. And he said, I want to show you something. And he walked me over to the wall. And my book was number one selling in Massachusetts. And I remember thinking, oh, my, I think my life will be changing now. You know, that it just was a moment. It started to sink in, like something's happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that book was wonderful to me because what it allowed me to do was live the life of a writer. And depending on how we count, Karen, I'm, I'm up to 11 or 12 books. So, yeah. Yes, yes. So there was that, you know, the, the, the hunger pains, the reviving Ophelia. I remember, let's see, I graduated from high school in 83. So I'm not sure when I, I think in college years, I might've been reading some of this. I have some of my own history with an eating disorder. I was surrounded at university with young women who were struggling with these issues. I remember it all so well, just, and now I, well, I have the hard copy. I have paperbacks. If I see it somewhere, you know, on a shelf at a, a thrift store, I buy it so I can give it to people. It's just, I, I, I love it so much. And I, I found it so life-changing for me personally when I read it. And one of the things too that stands out to me about your writing is I always say, I feel like your background in anthropology comes through. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one more thing I want to say about reviving before we move on is my daughter and I did a 25th year anniversary edition and totally updated that book, did new interviews. We sent the book out to girls all over the country and told them to X out what no longer seemed interesting or important to them from the 1994 edition. And then to write in the margins what they did want us to talk about instead. So we got all these books back from girls. We did focus groups. We did research. And I think it was maybe two years ago, we brought out the 25th anniversary edition, which is quite a different book because it covers social media. It covers school shootings, covers yes. a lot of things that weren't. It covers, um, you know, this book was written pre-cell phone. Um, yes. And pre-computer. So it covers a whole new world that we're living yes. in. Yes. So everybody like me who who has these books from way back, we need to go back and get the updated edition. And what an amazing way that you did research. It was like, who thought of that? Let's send yeah. these books out and, and see yeah. what people. That was <laughs> a really good idea. That gave a great deal of information. Who Who thought of that idea? I did. I think I did. You did. Yeah. I mean, what a way to try to elevate and 
the voice of, of women who are out there now. Now, did you find, of course, so many things have changed. As you said, it's pre-cell phone. Did you find there were common themes that still went through this, but it, it was expressed in a different way because of social media and things like this? Or did it just feel yeah. like, wow? Like oh, so many things were different. Like, for example, when I wrote in 94, most girls were angry at their mothers, didn't particularly like their mothers, a lot of struggle with mothers. This time around, girls were saying, my mother's my best friend. Um, another big difference was um, girls were much more social. They were in a lot more trouble uh, for acting out in 94. Now the average teenage girl on a Saturday night is alone in her bedroom with her phone and Netflix. So it's a very, uh, there's much less actual contact with girls. They're better behaved. They're more hooked into their families. That's really good. But they're also less likely to be having much contact with their peers. So a lot of the recommendations in our book was encouraging people who work with teenagers to actually invite friends over and host little parties and figure out ways teenagers could get together and interact in person, which is actually fairly scary to teenagers now. Wow. Uh, another thing that was different was uh, in the original reviving, we didn't have a chapter on anxiety because anxiety wasn't a primary issue back in 94. Mm -hmm. Acting out, pregnancy, uh, drug use, etc., eating disorders, much depression, bigger issues. This time around, anxiety is the big issue. So we have a chapter, we wrote a chapter on anxiety based on. And an interesting thing, too, is when we did these focus groups at our house, you know, we were kind of going along asking about anxiety and relationships. It's much less, uh, much less sexual activity now. Uh, girls are afraid of it. It's so weird. They don't want any anything to do with sex in many cases. They're waiting till college. They're they're just not interested in getting into the craziness that is the sex. That's so interesting because images out there are so sexualized at very young ages. You know, even some of these photos that I see that are like dance photos of little girls. I'm like. Wow, these are different pictures then. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so it was a lot of, uh, it was very exciting to write it. I'd been hesitating because I'm no longer working with teenage girls. But as it turned out, we we really had a lot of contact with teenage girls. It was very yes. fun. Yes. Right. That's now, so whose idea was it your daughter's idea whose idea, or daughter's idea yeah, so, so yeah. she brought some energy to that yeah yeah, yeah. oh i love that it, yeah so oh gosh that's so that's fascinating how i'm i'm still thinking about this research research and sending the books out and having women write you know about that so uh, and another book that i think about a lot you know in my own career, I reflect on is the shelter of each other, mm -hmm. that book. And I remember just again, that looking at the broader cultural 
scene. I, I, I felt, what, what do you want to say about that book? Anything you want to say about that book? Well, you know, it was kind of a love song to families. And it was right at the time my children were growing up and leaving mm-hmm. that I wrote it. And I loved being a mom. I loved being a parent. So that it was really hard to let those children move into their own adult lives. And also it was right at the height of parent bashing and family bashing and therapists sort of, you know, it was kind of in the recovered memory era when therapists were sometimes, I think, encouraging people to remember things that caused them to dislike their parents and disliked. So I just, I wanted to write a book that said, uh, we therapists have an extremely useful role to play in the lives of families. But that when our role is to discourage people from involvement with their families, we do them a great disservice because we aren't going to be the people paying the rent if they lose a job or inviting them to Thanksgiving dinner. And I I really use that book as an examination of the role that therapists play in the culture, which gets back to your earlier question, Karen, about anthropology and I have always been interested in how other cultures look at things. And that Margaret Mead's area was culture and personality. How does culture affect personality? Well, that's the area of anthro I was in. Then when I got into psychology, I sort of moved to how does culture affect personality in psychology? And that was always what interested me. And you may know I later wrote a book about refugees and just this last year, Uh, Two other couples and my husband and I helped um, settle a large group of Afghans here in Lincoln. That stuff where you look at, well, how do families arrange themselves and how do how do the rules affect the way people relate? To me, that's just fascinating. And it was very good, I think, for me as a writer that I had a dual background. In fact, I think if you have a dual background in a couple things and can put them together and synthesize you're likely to have something to say as a writer uh, because you're outside of the established boundaries of a field when you bring in another. It could be anything. I mean, it could be history. It could be astrology. I mean, astronomy could be anything almost that makes your work uh, richer and denser and more complex. You've been so masterful at that. I think about, um, and I'm pretty sure it's in that book um where you well two things that i often share with families or others i am working with one was about you were talking about air conditioning like how something that seems maybe oh this is a helpful thing this is a good thing this is you know there's nothing scary or frightening about air conditioning or or terrible for a culture and then you talked about how but it brought everyone inside so i'd like you to talk about that idea a little bit more but then there was this other idea about bringing knives to a tribe where a lot of the men's identity was around making a knife, right? And the impact of that, those are two stories that have so stuck with me. And I would like listeners to hear your version of how you talked, wrote about that, I guess I should say. Well, you know, anthropology is full of stories about how 
a small intervention by an outsider changes the dynamics of a tribe. That particular story had to do with, I can't remember now where this where this occurred, but but the the anthropologist in question felt sorry for the wives trying to prepare food without knives. So he ordered knives and gave them to the women, but that ended up disempowering the men because one of their jobs was to make the primitive knives they made, which weren't as good. And then uh, air conditioning is an example. Uh, people were out on their porches. They were uh, sitting out in their yards. They were talking to their neighbors who were also out on their porches. So that, excuse me, so that when, when heating and air conditioning systems became the way they are now, central air, uh, people went inside to stay cool and they stopped visiting with their neighbors. They stopped watching children. Children were outside playing because that's what you did at night. You went outside and played to cool down and so on. Another big one was um, home entertainment centers, which yes. really pulled people away from community events because you could make an effort and get dressed and go out to a church social or you could stay home with your home entertainment center and the really when you think about these kinds of technologies across say the years of my lifetime i'm 75 now and i was a girl in the 50s and, and 60s they they're looking at different cultures the technologies we have now have fundamentally changed very significantly the way we relate to each other you know i noticed here's just a small sample of this example of this so my husband's a full-time musician and I'm, I'm a full-time writer now. So we, we both work out at the home and he goes out once a day to exercise. And it used to be when he came home, he'd come in and talk to me a few minutes. Now, when he comes home, he heads to his computer to check what's come in. Well, I don't mind this. I see him all day long. That's not the point, but it's just a change in his behavior that I'm guessing is reflected in the changes of behavior of people all over the country, you know? Yes, you know what I what I thought maybe you were gonna say with that story about your husband was he would come back in and tell me the people he bumped into, you know, while he was out and yeah. give me, you know, updates on what's going on with them. Yeah. Well, and he eventually does it, but he doesn't do it right away. He looks at his computer and I spend much more time on the computer than I planned mm -hmm. when I bought a computer. I plan to buy a computer as a word processor. And here I am talking to you on Zoom. You know, things yes. have changed for me, too. Yes. Yes. And then also, especially because a lot of our audience is, are, are, is comprised of people who are therapists, I have led many a study group with young therapists, although I think the book is great for therapists at any age, Letters to a Young Therapist. And that is a book that everybody should know about. And I think whether you're a young or not a young, I'll say not young therapist <laughs> instead of old, um, it's such a great book. Tell me how that came about. Well, one thing I want to say about that book that makes me really happy is it's a textbook now. I mean, it's, it's a book that's used a lot in colleges and grad schools. So that I'm so amazed that something I wrote in 2002 is actually probably more widely read now than when it came out. But uh, it came out after 9-11. Um, and 
I wanted to stay home. I didn't have the energy for a big research study. And I was asked to be part of a series by um, a woman named um, Nancy Miller from Basic Books. And she asked me, would I write letters to young therapists? There was letters to an activist, letters to a young physician. Oh, I didn't even realize it was part of a... It was part of a series. Okay. And um, so anyway, I uh, decided I'd like to do it. And that book was so easy to write because Jim and I, my husband and I, we just sat down and kind of brainstormed about, well, what are all the issues we can, you know, kind of discuss? And then I, I just wrote a little personal essay about each of them, you know. Uh-huh. And at the time, I, I was very aware that what you learn in grad school is the anatomy of the inner ear and all these different theories. And that when you actually go out and start seeing people, there's all these issues that come up that you've never learned anything about, like burnout, um, safety, um, how to deal with certain tricky relational issues with clients. And so that's really what I wanted to write about is stuff that had happened to me as a full-time therapist that, that was not part of grad school curricula. So, Yes, and very often books at least books in academia or things that we're reading in universities, uh, the, the authors are not seeing clients because it's hard to write books and see clients, right? It's, it's, <laughs> I don't know how you did that. Um, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, yeah. well, I did it. I did it for years by waking up at five in the morning and writing till my kids got up. Okay. And then after I had, uh, success with reviving Ophelia, I started taking off three mornings a week and just working two mornings a week in the afternoon okay. and carving out more time to write as I, you know, as I, as I wrote more and, and made more of a living from writing. Eventually I made a better living from writing than therapy, but that took, you know, 15 years. Yeah, that that's not an easy living, though. Wow. I think people may not recognize how hard it is to just write one book. Um, and you've written so Being many. Being a therapist is not an easy way to make a living. Being a writer is not an easy way to live. And, I, you know, to be honest, Karen, I don't know what is an easy way to make a living, really. I mean, if you look at most jobs, they're hard. They're hard jobs for most mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And somehow um, you've always, when I read your books, I get this sense that you've managed to keep alive some of these things that you feel are so important, like getting together with your community and going to like a live music event or dancing. And, and sometimes I, I would sit back and, and, and I was in living in rural Midwest for a lot of the time when I was reading some of your books. And, um, but it was almost like, I felt like you were so aware of the current issues, but you somehow were managing to step back in time and create this microcosm for yourself. And that inspired me. Thank you. You know, I, for me, I think one thing that's been wonderful is living in the same town 50 years. And over the course of 50 years, there just start to be, there's writing friends, there's women friends, there's musician friends, there's mental health friends, neighbor friends. And so it ends up, and in a, in a town like Lincoln, people tend to know each other. 
You know, my my editor, Jane, I spoke of earlier in New York City, has stayed my friend and we have conversations regularly. But she has, of course, plenty of friends, too, but they don't know each other. And it's so much harder to get together. Lincoln, where I live, is just a great town in terms of everybody can easily get to everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. and tends to know the same people. So that makes it a lot easier. Yes, that's true. You know, I think of my mother-in-law who lives in a small town in Missouri. And when there's a death in the family or something hard, there's just people in and out of the house from all from church, from she used to have this women's group they called club. I mean, it didn't even really have something. I mean, I think they just got together at each other's houses and maybe played a game or something. And, you know, there's just like this uh, long trail of people like coming in and out and bringing food and shocking in. And I, I remember thinking, wow, this is not something you see all the time in this day and age. Well, and it it leads to the the primary topic of the show, which is attachment. Yes. And I'm a very attachment-oriented person. I I really like people. I make a lot of effort to stay connected to people. And I do a lot of scheduling walks and scheduling lunches and scheduling um, get-togethers of various kinds. And I've always I've always been that way since I was adult. I like a lot of people in my life, and I th- I think a lot of of um, having friendships, being embedded in a community, uh, has to do with how hard you work at it. And some communities are much easier than others, but it, it's a very active process having a community. It's it involves a lot of work and commitment and time. And in fairness to many people, they don't have that time. You know, they're raising kids, they're working full-time, they're commuting. It's just very difficult to find the time to be in community. Yes, it does take a lot of time. I agree with that. It has to be a a high high priority if you if you have a life that you can make it that way. So well, listeners, um, thank you so much for being with us, Mary, for, Mary Pfeiffer, um, for the first part of this interview. And as we uh, continue our discussion with Dr. Mary Pfeiffer next week, we're going to zero in on her most recent book, A Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. So please come back. I know all of you will love the conclusion of this interview. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.